A reading from Philippians 4, 1 to 3. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I plead with you, Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help those women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. The word of the Lord. I was going to tell you, oop, can you hear me? Are we on? Okay. I was going to let you all know to be seated, but you got ahead of me. That's good. Uh, it may not seem like it, but our sermon topic this morning is actually a heavy one, so I'm going to pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We welcome your presence and your power, Holy Spirit, this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, doctors John and Julie Gottman are a husband and wife team, and for the last 40 years, they have studied, interviewed, and worked with literally thousands of couples. They're actually considered some of the four most authorities in the world of couples therapy. And in their research, they identify two very generalized categories of couples, what they call master couples and disaster couples, okay? I, you can probably guess which one you'd want to be in, okay? Now, here's an interesting find that they had about, about master couples. What they found is that among master couples, 68% of their disagreements together would go unresolved. Think about that for a second. That means the people that are, the couples that are doing it right, if I can say it that way, they're happy in their relationship. We'd look at them and go, oh, they're so, they're so good together. Those couples, almost two-thirds of the stuff they fight about, they're going to keep fighting about for the rest of their lives together. Moreover, they're fighting about the same kinds of things the rest of us are fighting about. They're arguing about family stuff. They're arguing about money and sex and which way the toilet paper roll is supposed to go. So the question then becomes, what's the difference, right? What makes them masters? Well, what the Gottmans found, the real difference between master couples and disaster couples was how they fought. That there was a real fundamental difference in the way master couples would navigate differences and conflict with one another. And that difference really does make all the difference because what they found is the number one predictor of whether or not a couple would stay together is how they manage their conflicts together. Now, why am I telling you this? Okay, not clearly most, there's lots of us in the room who aren't married, right? Why am I telling you this? Well, the reason I'm telling you this is that 2,000 years before John and Julie Gottman began their research, the Apostle Paul said something very similar. Not about couples, but about Christians. If you haven't been with us, we are in a sermon series in the book of Philippians. We have been for the course of the summer. And one of the big themes in the book of Philippians is relationships between Christians, or what we would call Christian unity. 
And what Paul has been saying and really kind of brings into focus here in chapter 4 is that Christian unity is a lot like marriage. You see, marriage is a status, right? You either are or you are not married. You don't get more or less married. Once you say, I do, boom, now you are. And at the same time, that marriage relationship must be maintained. It must be tended to, cared for. If it is to be what it is meant to be, if it is to flourish, the marriage relationship has to be cared for. And in a very, very similar way, as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, our unity is a status, right? If you are a Christian, that means God the Holy Spirit is living inside of you, and you are now supernaturally united to Christ, and by extension, you are united to everyone else who is united to Christ. So in a very real sense, we who are Christians in the room cannot be more united than we already are. And at the same time, that unity must be maintained. It is to be cared for, tended to, if we are to see the fruit of that unity. If our unity is to be what God wants it to be and to do what God is intended it to do, we must maintain that unity together. And just like marriage, one of the primary, if not the most fundamental way that we maintain our unity together is through how we manage conflicts and differences. Told you it was a big topic. So, I have titled this sermon, Fighting Like Christians. So, as Christians, we are called to fight in a way we are to fight like masters of conflict, okay? That's what we're called to do. So let's ask three questions to learn how to do that together this morning. Number one, why is it important? Why is it so important that we navigate our conflicts in this manner? Number two, how do we do it? If we are to navigate conflict differently, what does that actually look like in practice? And number three, what do we need? If we are to manage our conflicts together like masters, what do we need in order to do that? Okay? Why is it important? How do we do it? What do we need? Okay? So let's start off with why is it important? Well, Paul doesn't actually tell us explicitly why this is important. Rather, he infers it with this word, therefore. What Paul is doing with that word, therefore, is he's saying, okay, in light of what I just said, therefore, do this. Okay? So you have to look at what Paul has just been saying, which if we back up just a couple of verses in chapter 3, Paul has been talk, telling the Philippians, hey, remember of your citizenship. Your, your citizenship is in heaven. Now, that is a really, really poignant image. It would have been especially for the Philippians because, one, citizenship like marriage, it is a status, is it not? It, you either are or you are not a citizen. And just like marriage, citizenship comes with both privilege and responsibility, right? And again, for the Philippians, this would have really, really stood out because the ancient city of Philippi was a Roman colony, and it was largely inhabited by veterans of the Roman army. Okay, so to put this in sort of our modern American framework, Philippi would have been a red city, Okay, there would have been a lot of like, you know, talk around traditional Roman values 
and signs that say, let's make Rome great again. And, you know, a sort of Romans for Rome sentiment, right? Like this is, we're talking, these are very Roman-centric people, okay? And so what is, what is Paul doing? He says, Philippians, don't forget you might be ethnically Roman, but your identity is not Roman. It is in Christ, which means you have all the rights and privileges of a citizen of heaven, and you bear the responsibility of living as a foreigner in a foreign land. Your priorities, your allegiances, your loyalty is not to the glory of Rome. It is to the glory of Christ. And so there is an implicit call to live as good citizens of the kingdom of heaven, which, what would that look like? Well, I think Jesus said it pretty simply. He said, this is how everyone will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. To live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven means that we live as a community of love and service. And that is crucial because we are living as strangers in a foreign land. We what we do, our life together, represents our king and who he is. Right? So, therefore, in light of that citizenship, Paul says, oh, let's back up one, stand firm thus. You could also translate those words in this manner, persevere, continue, persist. Right? So, what Paul is saying is, keep living as good citizens of the kingdom of heaven, right? Keep doing, you're already doing it, keep doing it. Live as a community of love and service and keep going. And he says this generalized command, stand firm, and then where does he immediately apply that command? To the context of two Christians having a conflict. Now, isn't that interesting? Why does Paul do that? Well, I think a very simple way to explain why Paul goes there first is this. When we fight, we tend to forget. Now, let me explain to you what I'm talking about here. So, if you've ever been in an argument with somebody, you know, like the, the conflict has escalated, you're kinda, you're, you've gotten hot around the collar, it's like we're not, we're not having just a, a, a calm conversation anymore. It's sort of like mm, things have kind of turned up a notch, right? And you, you kind of feel hot around the right? You've ever, if you've ever been there, which I'm, I'm sure some of you guys are like, no, I've never been there. If we were to zoom in on your brain at that moment, this is what we would see. Lots of activity in this area. This is your amygdala. It's part of your limbic system. It's part of the brain that's responsible for your fight or flight response, right? It's the part of your brain that activates when your body perceives, oh, I'm in danger. It's time to get safe, right? And, you, and then, what, but here's the thing, okay? When that's going off, your body's filling up with all of these stress hormones, cortisol, adrenaline, epinephrine, right? And they're all motivating you to get safe. But what is not getting very much neurological activity is this part of your brain, your prefrontal cortex. That's the part of your brain that does all of your rational, logical thinking. It's the part of your brain that's creative, that's cooperative, that knows how to compromise and work with other people. So in a very real sense, when we are in that fight mode or flight mode, we literally forget what we know. And you, look, you don't have to be a Christian to know what I'm talking about. If you've been in a, really, in a situation where conflict has escalated and people are getting upset, it's like all of a sudden you forget who you are. You will say things that you yourself know aren't true. 
that you yourself know aren't, are not good, that you're like, I, I should not have said that. Why did I say that? Oh, I was so upset. Right? You will do things that you yourself disapprove of. Right? It's like we forget who we are. It's like we also forget our relationship to the other person. Right? When you're in that place, it's like that person is enemy number one. It's like they're a monster out to destroy you, and your only option is to destroy them back, even though, and it's like you've completely forgotten, oh, right, that's my best friend. That's my spouse whom I love, this, a family member who I deeply care for, or this person. Like, we're on the same side. We want the same things. We're, we're for this. We want all of the same things. We have the same goals. But in that moment, it's like all that disappears. And all that matters in that moment is to destroy this person who's trying to destroy me. We forget what we have. It's like in that moment, all you can think about is the negative feeling that you're having. And it feels like I've always felt this bad, and I will always feel this way, and I can't think of anything positive about this relationship, and I, ha I can't think of anything that has ever happened that would contradict this negative feeling I'm having. Right? We forget that we have this much bigger relationship with that person it's just all that exists right now is just this bad, negative feeling that I'm having. Now, that's, I mean, I think even if you're not a Christian, we can agree. Like, we don't, none of us like being in that place. But as Christians, it is, we, we really, when we get there, you know what happens? We fail to love each other. In fact, we can't love each other when we get to that place. Because... When we are in that self-defensive, self-protective place, we are incapable of love. Love, by its very nature, extends self to the other. And when you are self-protecting, you can't extend anything, right? It's all about what I need in that moment to protect myself, and it has nothing to do with you, right? Or as the Apostle John says, he said it pretty simply, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. You see, fear self-protective, self-defensive mode is antithetical to love. And so when we fight, we fail to live as a community of love and service, and we malign the name of Jesus. I'm going to say that again. When we fight, when we operate from this place of fear and self-protection, we fail to live as a community of love and service to one, with, of, with one another, and we malign the name of Jesus, our King. So that's what we don't want to do, okay? That's why it's so important. What do we want to do? Well, that brings us to the second question. We just saw why it's so important. It's important because when we fight, we forget about our citizenship, right? Our call to live as a community of serve, love and service. But how do we do it? What it would it actually look like for us to not fight in that way, but to fight differently, to disagree differently? Well, Paul actually tells us through what he tells Euodia and Syntyche. Okay, now who are Euodia and Syntyche, you asked? That's a great question. The answer is, I don't know. This is the only place they're mentioned. We don't have anything outside of the Bible that mentions them again, so we don't really know. But every biblical scholar commentator that I looked at Said, basically said there are three things that we can know with relative confidence about Euodia and Syntyche. Number one, pretty obvious, they were Christians. That seems pretty obvious. Number two, they were well-known. People knew who they were. Most likely, they were leaders in the church. That's Why does Paul feel comfortable calling them out publicly? 
Well, because they were already public figures. Everybody already knew what was happening between them, right? And number three, and again, obviously, they're in open conflict. They disagree about something. Now, praise God, that is the only time in all of history that two Christians have ever disagreed. (laughs) If you didn't pick up on that, that is sarcasm. No, Christians disagree all the time. We, if you can think of it, we've disagreed about it. We will disagree about church leadership. Who's in charge? How do you decide what kinds of people are or not allowed to be in leadership and how leadership is supposed to be organized and how decisions get made? We'll disagree about all that stuff. We will disagree about worship, what songs we should or should not sing, what kinds of music we should or should not sing it to, what kinds of instruments should or should not be played, and how many songs do you sing, and how long should the sermon go, and where do you put, you know, the liturgy in the midst of all the songs, and like, like how many times are you allowed to repeat a chorus, right? We will disagree about all of that stuff. We'll disagree about baptism and the Lord's Supper and how exactly those things work, and whether or not you're allowed to administer them to babies. We will disagree about what color to paint the walls because we're people and people disagree about stuff. But unfortunately, history, throughout history and right now, all the time, we Christians do do not, have not listened to the Lord and what he says through the Apostle Paul here in Philippians. And we have allowed many, many times over for our disagreements to become nasty fights, division, dissension between each other. And we can be just as guilty as anybody else of being malicious and mean and manipulative and backbiting and gossipy. Sometimes we're worse. And some of you have been, had firsthand personal experience with this. And it, maybe it even drove you away from the church. And you're only just now beginning to, like, dip your toe back into it. And if that was you, if that is you, one, please hear me say, I am so sorry that you had to see that and be a part of that, to witness that and experience Christians fighting in that way. And I can completely understand why it would drive you away from the church. If I may challenge you in this, in this one way. Is the problem Christianity or Jesus? Or is the problem those Christians you had a relationship with? Because what the Apostle Paul is telling Euodia and Syntyche here is that it's, when Christians act like that, it's not that they're acting too Christian. They aren't acting Christian enough. What does Paul tell Euodia and Syntyche to do? He says, to agree in the Lord. Now, I don't love this English translation because it kind of sounds like Paul is telling Euodia and Syntyche to just get along, right? Like, a lot of you know that I have three wonderful children, and it is not an uncommon experience for my children to come to me with a disagreement. He touched my, she said, they won't let share, right? And what are they doing? They're coming to me and going, Father... Would you render justice to this situation? And I'm, I'm not proud to tell you guys that it is more common than not that my response is something to the effect of, children, I don't care about justice. I am tired. I have no patience. So would you please just get along? Right? Just get over it. Move past it. Don't talk about it. Just be quiet. Right? 
which doesn't actually help them navigate conflict. It doesn't actually resolve the issue at hand. It doesn't help anybody. But, you know, even as adults, when we have conflict between each other, we do this, right? When, when it's suddenly, because conflict's uncomfortable. We don't like it. So what do we do? We're like, ooh, don't talk about it. Sweep it under the rug, move past it. Ah, blah, blah, blah. Let's just do it. Let's talk about this thing over here. Let's stay away from those touchy subjects. We don't address it. Or we move past it really, really quickly and don't actually sit with it and try to resolve it. Or we do the opposite thing. We try to squash it, right? We come in with a lot of aggression, a lot of energy, and we basically are like, all right, here's the deal. I'm right, you're wrong, I'm smart, you're dumb, and there's nothing you can do about it. Boom! Conflict over. (laughs) But do either of those strategies actually resolve the conflict? No. Most of the time, they actually make more conflict. But is that what Paul is telling them to do? Is that what he's saying, just get along? No. When Paul says agree in the Lord, he's using a very familiar word, the word phroneo. Does that sound familiar? We've seen it a lot in the book of Philippians. It's this word, that, the Greek word that gets translated mind or mindset. He's telling them, euodia, synctiki, have the same mindset in the Lord, which should hearken us back to chapter 2, if you've been with us. Remember that? Where Paul tells the Philippians, hey, in your relationships with, mo- with, with each other, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Remember this? And then he goes, what is the mindset of Christ? Well, we're not going to read the whole passage, but the summary is what Eric called the gospel three-step. Though, no, but. Remember that? Though, no, but. Though Jesus was God, he did not cling to his status as God, but became a servant. Though, no, but. So he's saying, have ladies and Christians, when you disagree, have this same mindset as Christ. He's telling you, it's disagree, but with the mindset of Christ. Now, what would that actually look like for us to disagree, but with the mindset of Christ? Well, let me just edit our gospel three-step just a little bit to make it a little bit more applicable to what we're talking about. Though Jesus was God, he did not use his divine power or privilege to protect himself, but gave himself to be in relationship with us. You see, Jesus cared more about being in relationship with you than about holding on to the status and the privilege that would protect him. Let's go back to the Gottmans for a minute. What really made the difference between masters and... How did master couples actually fight? What made the difference? Well, there's, the Gottmans have written books on the subject, and if, you, if you're interested, I would recommend go read those books. They're, they're really good. So I'm just going to summarize here some of their findings for you. What they basically found, the real key distinctive about master couples, is that they would argue in a way that would protect and prioritize the relationship over everything else. That... They would, they would disagree, but in a way that would say, I care more about you and our relationship than I do about being right or getting my way or feeling like, you know, you have completely 100% validated every thought and everything I've ever had. It means that even when I'm feeling really big, strong emotions, I refuse to default to self-protective criticism and contempt and defensiveness 
and accusations, but instead I will remain open and vulnerable with you. The same is true for us, you guys. What does it look like for us to disagree with the mindset of Christ? It looks like choosing to prioritize relationship over everything else. And listen, that's hard. Especially when you come in contact with a major disagreement and emotion. And it's, it's something you feel really, really, really strongly about. And all of a sudden emotions are high and you feel and everything inside of you wants to get defensive. You want to prove your rightness. You want to pull away because, oh, this is uncomfortable. And I don't like your, this, what this, how this feels. Right? Everything inside of us does not want to do this. But when we choose instead of being self-protective, fearful, instead to say, okay, being in relationship with you is more important than me being right, than me getting my way, than me feeling comfortable or safe or non-offended. That is what it looks like for us to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me make a really quick caveat here. What I don't want you to hear me say, and I'm, some of you might have heard me just say, oh, if I'm experiencing abuse in the church, that means I'm not supposed to call it out or do anything about it because, you know, prioritize relationship. Woo, that is not what I'm saying. This passage is not addressing the context of abuse, okay? There are other passages we would turn to to address that topic, okay? And if that is something that is on your mind or on your heart and, or that you've experienced, please feel free to come up and talk to me or one of the elders. We would be very happy to hear you out, listen, answer some questions for you, okay? But that is, a, that is, that is not what we are addressing here this morning. So let's keep the application to what the passage addresses, which is disagreements, and we may not have experienced it yet, but there are lots of disagreements in this room. And they will, if they haven't already, they will make themselves known. And so, the question before us is, are we willing to prioritize being in relationship with the people in this room more than protecting ourselves? That sounds hard, doesn't it? nigh impossible unless we have some very powerful resources at hand. Which brings us to our last question. We've seen why this is so important. It's important because when we fight, we forget about our citizenship. And how do we do it? We disagree, but we maintain the mindset of Christ that prioritized relationship over self-protection. But what do we need? Well, thankfully, again, Paul shows us what we need and what he says in verse 3. He says, I ask you, true companion, that's the, the, whoever delivered the letter, that's who he's addressing, help these women. So what do we need? We need help. We need help. But what exactly do we need help doing? Well, if the problem when we fight is that we tend to forget, what do we need help with? Well, we need help remembering. What exactly do we need to remember? Well, notice what Paul does. In verse 1, he uses all of this affectionate language. He goes, My brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, my beloved. In fact, the whole letter 
of Philippians is just dripping with this affection. It's like Paul is going out of his way to say, Philippians, don't forget how much you're loved. And then he goes on. In verse 3, he, he says, these women have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement, who, by the way, is a church leader that we do know a lot about. He was a, a very well-known uh, church leader in the first century. And the rest of my fellow workers, what is he doing? He's reminding them, look, you guys are on the same side. You're equals. You're co-workers in the gospel. You want the same thing. You're on the same mission. You're on the same team. And then he, and he ends with this, that whose names are in the book of life? Now, if you're unfamiliar with that, that image, the book of life, it's something that shows up all throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament. And it, it, the image is like this. It's like God has this book. It's sort of the, the citizen role of heaven. It's the names of everybody throughout all of his time in history who belong to him, who are his children, his citizens of his kingdom, who will, when Jesus comes back on the last day, be resurrected to eternal life, to live with him in the new heavens and new earth forever. Okay? And if, if, you, if you're not picking up on it, you want your name in the book of life. Okay, Jesus himself said, if you're going to get excited about anything, this is my paraphrase, by the way, if you're going to get excited about anything, get excited that your name is written in the book of life. Okay, that's the thing you want. So he's like, he's reminding them, you're loved. You're on the same team. You have, you are a citizen of the kingdom. You have all of these privileges. Yes, responsibilities, but with all of these privileges to back it up. Now, here's the question you need to ask yourself. How does your name get in that book? How do you become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Do you, does God write your name in the book because you're a good person who generally tries to do the right thing? Is it because you come to church on Sunday or read your Bible most days? Or because your parents were Christians? Because you were baptized, christened, or catechized at whatever age? No. Paul, and earlier in chapter 3, Eric talked about this a few weeks ago. Paul says all that stuff, that's crap. He does. Because if your name is in the book of life, it's because Jesus blotted his name out on the cross to put your name in its place. If your name is in the book of life, it is because Jesus Christ set down his crown and the joy of being in the eternal presence of the Father in order to take on the crown of thorns and take on our sorrows on the cross in your place. If your name is in the book of life, it's because God the Father loved and longed for you so deeply that he sent his only begotten son, his beloved, into the world to die a horrific death on the cross for you so that he could call you his beloved. You see, friends, the mindset of Christ that we have but we so quickly forget is this. The mi Christ's mindset took him to the cross with us on his mind. His mind. Christ's mind was so filled with you and being in relationship with you that it took him to the very end, to hell and back again. And when that love, that mindset fills your vision, fills your mind and your heart, there's no room left for fear. 
As John said, perfect love casts out fear. The only thing that has the power to protect us from our self-protective ways is what Jesus has done for us, who he is, what he has given us freely through his life, death, and resurrection. And so, what do we need? We need help remembering the mind of our king for us. We need help remembering, oh yeah, that's who he is, and that's what he's done for me, and that makes, that makes me who I am. And so I don't have to be afraid. And I can extend myself in love and service to others, even, and maybe especially, when there's conflict. Now, before we close, let me make some real specific applications to Central West End Church, okay? Let me talk to a minute for the, to the leaders in the room and online, to the elders, to the deacons, to this church staff, to community group leaders. If, you ha- if it hasn't happened already, it will happen, I promise you. You will be called upon as leaders to help these brothers and sisters in Christ agree in the Lord. That is not a call to make them get along quickly to end the conflict as fast as you can. That is a call to remind them of how loved they are, of all of the privilege they have of being a child of God, that to remind them of the mindset of Christ for them. And that's hard, especially when the conflict is hot. It's hard to sit with the conflict like that, just, ugh. okay? But that's what you're called to do. But even if you're not a leader, you are, if you're a Christian, you are a co-worker in the gospel. If you walk with Jesus long enough, there will come a day when you are called to help a brother or sister or Christ agree in the Lord. It will come. And so to you too, I say, that is not a call to end conflict quickly. And for all of us, how do we How do we remind each other of the mindset of Christ for us, the mind of our king? We have to let it fill our minds. We, I mean, it's part of what we do here. We sing about it. We talk about it. We remind each other during community group. And it's like as often as we see each other, we keep reminding each other, okay, you're loved. You're loved. You're loved. You are a child of the king. We need that to be reminded of that every day. And the world needs us to be reminded of that every day. Amen? Amen. If you would, would you please pray with me? Father, thank you so much that you do love and long for us and that you were willing, Lord Jesus, to pay the ultimate price in order to be in relationship with us. Help us, Spirit, by your power and your presence in our life as individuals and as a community, help us to be so filled with your mind that we are willing to extend ourselves to one another in love and service, especially in the context of conflict. We cannot do it on our own. We need your power and your presence, Lord. Thank you that you are so willing and ready to give it. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.